All right, in our first study uh, yesterday, <clears throat> we kicked off looking at how the providence of God determined that in a very wicked, very tumultuous state, the appropriate thing was an eight-year-old. That's what God started with, because sometimes, brothers and sisters, in fact, often, God uses the weak things of the world to confound the mighty, doesn't he? The things that from the world's perspective would be utter foolishness is in fact wisdom with our Heavenly Father. And when we come to 2 Chronicles 34, that's Brother Josh read for us, we find that the preparation that we finished with yesterday, the preparation that Josiah was undergoing, actually took a fair bit of time. And that the purging actually took a fair bit of time because in verse 8, we, we've now already come just seven verses in the record of Josiah's kingship to the 18th year. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a little bit more detail in all that that entailed? But we don't. So Josiah is 26 now. He's still a relatively young man. And he knows that the work is not over. He knows that although... He's been through the land and purged it of so much idolatry that, that that really is just, at the most, half of the process, isn't it? That's half of the effort, because Reformation isn't just about getting rid of things. It's also about replacing those things with something good. Otherwise, as we said yesterday, all we've done is emptied the house and made room for seven spirits more evil than the first. It's all good and well for me to go home and, and destroy my idols and get rid of my old snares. But if I don't fill my time with something else, then those, those things will, or worse, creep back into our lives. But one of the keys of Josiah's reformation that we're gonna see for the whole rest of the week is that he involved other people. He got people involved. God surrounded him with, with a godly support network of people that were going in the same direction in life that he was. And so he doesn't set about to do all of this great reform on his own. Yes, he was personally involved, like we saw yesterday. There's Josiah smashing and burning and stamping and smash. Well, we're going to see that in, on Wednesday and in the second purge that he does. He, he's always involved, but it's not just him. He gets other people involved as well. We talked about this yesterday. Who did Josiah have involved with him in his, his support network and his inner circle of friends? Well, he had people like Jeremiah, the prophet Zephaniah. As we just read here, he had men like Shaphan and Azaliah and Masiah and Hilkiah. He got other people onto his team. And what a team this is. Think about that. You step back and look at it. Josiah on his team, he's got prophets. He's got a scribe. He's even got the governor of the city on his side, and he's got the high priest. This is what I think Brother Jason Bowis would call a dream team. <laughs> because that's what we need, brothers and sisters. We, we've, we cannot do it on ourselves, uh, on our own, and yet so often we try to. But what's really neat is that when you step back and look at this, Josiah actually, he is surrounded by a ton of people who are all related. It's really remarkable, actually. Zephaniah, I'll just let you sort of digest that for a moment. Zephaniah is actually Josiah's nephew. And if I've got that relation wrong, then you correct me afterwards. But th these men are all related to each other. Now, that doesn't mean that our dream team has to be made up of, of our relatives. But isn't it just neat how the record opens up when you realize that God has surrounded him, not just with a bunch of random people, these are faithful families trying to cling to the truth. Where did all these, these faithful people come from after a reign like Manasseh's and Ammon's? These are faithful families trying to cling to the truth. Oh, so similar to our own experience, isn't it, brothers and sisters? And by the way, how do we know that Jeremiah was contemporary with Josiah? Well, if all we'd have to do is turn to Jeremiah 1, which we won't. But Jeremiah 1, verse 1 and 2 tell us, that Jeremiah began to prophesy in the days of Josiah, king of Judah, in his 12th year. The reason that's important is because, remember, when does Josiah's purge begin? 
Oh, these things are all happening around the same time. Josiah begins his purge, and God says, <laughs> he's going to need some help. So he sends Jeremiah. And then the zeal that Josiah has, this young man, God sends him not a aged brother in the ecclesia. He sends him a peer. Josiah and Jeremiah were likely within five years of each other in their age because we know that Josiah is quite young when he starts his purge. And you remember what Jeremiah says when God calls him in Jeremiah chapter one. Jeremiah's response is, I cannot speak. I'm but a youth. And God puts these two young men together and says, get to work and support each other. And so Josiah feeds off Jeremiah's zeal. Jeremiah feeds off Josiah's zeal. And all I think, brothers and sisters, I think there were times when they, they also had to bolster each other and say, oh, I don't know if we can do this. This work is enormous. There's, there's no way that the Ecclesia is going to get behind this. Yes, you can do We can, This is the, the work that God has called us to. They bring the zeal. They encourage each other. And they get to work. It's important, brothers and sisters, to have a support network. Whether it's peers, whether it's those younger than us, older than us. I doubt I'm the only one in the room that struggles with this concept of, well, I want the work done well. And everyone else seems busy anyway. So I'll do it myself. Because I know it will get done well if I do it. At least by my standard. <laughs> <laughs> You might think the work is done terribly, but in my mind, it was done flawlessly. But, but that's naturally, we tend, I think a lot of us do. Maybe, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't struggle with, with delegating work. That's a real struggle for a lot of us, though, is, is, well, I know it will get done if I do it. Imagine if Josiah had said, I can do this all on my own. Just let me at it. But no, God gave him a support network, and he gets all these people involved. Because when he's feeling down, someone else picks him up. And when someone else is feeling down, he can pick them up. That's the value of friendship and fellowship and the truth, isn't it? They motivate us. They give us a little swift kick when we're feeling lazy. They ask us some, you know, we see someone at Bible class and they say, hey, what do you think? Any thoughts on why in the readings yesterday, you know, so-and-so? And you think, oh. Let me see if I can make something up because I actually didn't do the readings yesterday. And it just, that those little conscience pricks, that's what God has given us each other for. Somebody turns to you in the middle of a class or the middle of an exhortation, what was the passage he said? And you think, I have no idea. I wasn't listening, but I am now. Right? Those little things, that's what God has given us each other for. We cannot get, we cannot get through life. We cannot get to the kingdom on our own. And the big things and the small things, the support network that God blesses us with is there to utilize. So who's on your team, brothers and sisters? Whose team are you on? What are you bringing to the support network that you might be for someone else? Because it doesn't just have to be people that are your age. It could be someone 10 or 20 years older or younger than you. It could be, as we said yesterday, one of the young people here that needs Need someone a little more seasoned on their support team. And that might be you. Maybe you need someone with a little more energy and enthusiasm on your team. And that might be them. And that's how God works, isn't it? You know, what's really neat is, is Josiah has an example of this in his own life. Because as you see on the screen, Tokiah is, I mean, we can't be 100% sure, but I think, brothers and sisters, that the record is doesn't just throw names out there and then say, oh, these two people aren't related. I think it's quite likely that the Hokiah of the record of Josiah's life is the Hokiah who also happens to be a priest who is the father of Jeremiah. And so you've got Josiah, who's contemporary with Jeremiah. This would be like this week. Those of you that have teenagers, they're really good friends with each other, but they're also like really good friends with you. This is, this is a young person who is best friends with both a peer and the peer's parent. And today we might think, well, that's a bit weird. In society standards, they certainly would think that's a bit weird. But that's Josiah's example. So there is precedent, and there's all sorts of precedent in Scripture, isn't there, for these, these cross-generational relationships. Now, it goes on to tell us, as Brother Josh read in verse 9, that Josiah gave Shaphan and Maaseiah and Joah 
this job of repairing the house of God. And there are some incredible things that come out of the way this work was done. But first, step back and say, well, how did Josiah know that this was an important thing to do? Well, that's pretty obvious because Solomon had built the temple and it had fallen into disrepair. But how do we go about it? Well, where do we even begin? And isn't that the case with any big project in life, ecclesial or personal? Like, where do you start? Well, you start by figuring out what needs to get done, break it down into its component parts and say, well, then we'll take one thing at a time. I think Josiah looked back and he said, well, there's some precedent here. Because has anyone else ever undergone a similar effort to repair the temple through a similar process? And he looked back and said, yes, Joash had done this as well. In fact, if we go back and look at 2 Kings 12, which we won't, partly because of time and partly because the language is almost identical to Joash's repair of the temple, it starts with the language that they need to repair the house. So where are they going to get the funds to do it? Well, they're going to collect the money from the people. And who's going to collect the money? The faithful Levites who are keeping the door. And who should they give the money to? They're going to give it to the overseers. And then those overseers are going to distribute it to the workers who are going to bring stone and timbers to do the work. And there's going to be no reckoning of the money. We're going to talk about that more in just a minute because that is incredible when you step back to think about it. And all the work was done faithfully. All those phrases come right out of the record of Joash. So Josiah takes this example from a man who has gone so many years before him. But did you notice too, brothers and sisters, in verse 9, that this wasn't just limited to Judah? Because it tells us that in the middle of the verse, It says, the Levites that kept the door had gathered this of the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim and of all the remnant of Israel and of all Judah and Benjamin. Who's listed last? All Judah and Benjamin. Where are all these funds? Josiah is, again, reaching, just like Hezekiah did, reaching up into the northern ten tribes who are long gone into captivity because there are faithful families trying to cling to the truth, even in the northern 10 tribes. And Josiah knows that. He's got that spirit to reach out to them. And there are some who respond and they make contribution to the work, just like those in Judah and Benjamin. But just imagine, brothers and sisters, let's try to put this in practical terms for today. Just imagine the huge sum of money that this would have been. Now, we know what the flesh would do with a huge sum of money, given the opportunity. Just Let's just allow ourselves for just a, a dangerously brief moment to think about what the flesh would do. Now, you might think, there's no way I would do that. Great, because your spirit is way stronger than your flesh. The flesh would do what Judas did, right? Huge sum of money. Nobody's making a a reckoning of it anyway. I have a a little personal project that I could use some funds for. Let me just take a few dollars. Nobody will know anyway, because after all, there is so much money to begin with. But what does it say that they did with the money? Because that was not, not it at all. It says in verse 10 that they put it in the hand of the workmen that had the oversight of the house of Yahweh. And they gave it to the workmen that wrought in the house of Yahweh to repair and amend the house. Even to the artificers and builders gave they it to buy hewn stone and timber for couplings and to floor the houses which the kings of Judah had destroyed. So it starts with giving money to the lead workers. We've got a huge vat of money. Let's give the money to the lead workers who are responsible for the whole project. They're kind of overseeing things. But then those men give it to different tradespeople because not everyone knows how to do everything. So they give it to different tradespeople based on what they need to buy in order to go do and repair their personal section of the temple. This is, this is a pretty remarkable way to do an ecclesial project. It's very unusual from the world's perspective. If you, if you put this in ecclesial terms today, I don't know about your ecclesia, but we don't have 
10 finance brothers. We have one finance brother and an assistant finance brother. Now, maybe you have five. That doesn't matter how many you have, but there's a finance brother. And imagine, imagine brothers and sisters that let's just, um, maybe it's easier for the Bible camp because maybe not every, not every ecclesia has their own hall. Let's say after COVID, somebody goes back to the Bible camp and finds out that, well, there were, there were huge storms when nobody went back. I know people were going back to the Bible camp during COVID, but, and all the buildings are destroyed. Worst of all, the pavilion is completely, it's just, it needs so much work. We probably should start over. Now, some people would say, great, let's rebuild it better than it was before. I would argue that, that you know, you can hardly improve on it, but how much money do we have? Well, we've taken up a collection from all the ecclesias in North America, and even some of the brothers and sisters in, in Europe and Australia, all over the world have contributed to the work. We have a million dollars to rebuild the Bible camp. Wouldn't that be so encouraging? So it starts off on the right foot. And then imagine that the treasurer, whoever that is, Uncle Brian Carrick or whoever it is now, he says, okay, we're gonna distribute the money to anybody who comes that is a skilled laborer. And we're gonna say, go to the hardware store and buy whatever you need. And when you come back, I don't need receipts. I don't even need you to tell me how much you spent. I don't need to know how much you spent, or sorry, what you spent it on. I'm just gonna rely on you to do the work faithfully. Wow. Wow. Is that how your ecclesia would undertake a project that needed tens of thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars of work? I, I know that it's not, I'll be honest, that's not how my ecclesia functions. But that's, that's because people did the work faithfully. That's exactly what it says in 2 Kings 22, verse 7. Just come back really quickly to the parallel account in 2 Kings 22. This is remarkable. It says in 2 Kings 22, verse 7, there was no reckoning made with them of the money that was delivered into their hand. Why? Because they dealt faithfully. That is some serious trust, brothers and sisters. This is a huge project for a building that is in a horrible state. They need to buy stone and timbers for couplings and for, for a new roof. Major things from floor to ceiling have to be replaced and they just give the money to the people who are responsible and they have complete confidence and trust in them to do it. Not just to spend the money wisely, but to do the job well and to see it through until it's done. These are Levites who have a long heritage of working diligently in the truth. But wait, where did these Levites come from? They were, this was, this was, there was no use for Levites in the days of most of Manasseh's reign, certainly not in Ammon's reign. But these are faithful families clinging to the truth in evil times. It's a good reminder, like Elijah had to learn, that there were 7,000 who had not bowed the need, the need to Baal. In Manasseh's reign, there were no doubt those faithful who had, who had either gone into hiding or who had maintained their faith in God despite the wickedness around them. And when someone like Josiah comes along, they just come out of the woodwork, as it were. And they're reliable, faithful people who can be trusted, people who can be counted on to do the jobs that they're given faithfully. This is a powerful example in integrity, brothers and sisters. When someone asks something of us, when we take on a job in the ecclesia, can they give it to us with absolute confidence that it will get done? Or that if we don't know how to do it, we'll get someone else who does involved to make sure that the job gets done. And it doesn't matter what the job is because it's easy to do the job when, when it's short or simple or the weather is pleasant or the circumstances are convenient or when someone else is watching and will get recognition for it. What about when the job is long and tedious? What about when it's hot and difficult? What about when there's a work day and the forecast is bad, but the work has to get done? What about brothers and sisters, when you start a job that turns out to be far, far bigger 
than you thought it was going to be. What about brothers and sisters when you look around and say, well, everybody else seems to have abandoned the work. Maybe we should too. Can we be completely reliable, faithful, as the record says, to do what we've been asked to do, even when no one else is watching, when the circumstances are adverse, to the extent that maybe no one else will ever know. No one else even needs to ask. These workmen were absolutely trustworthy to get the job done well. It's such an inspiring example to see that faithful spirit. And when we see it in someone else, doesn't it just inspire that same spirit in us? And what a picture of ecclesial togetherness this is. There, there is a tremendous spirit of togetherness as this project gets underway. This fantastic, positive ecclesial project led by the 26-year-old in the ecclesia. There are people who are skilled laborers who can do the manual work in the ecclesia. There are people who can oversee the work to ensure that it gets done well. There are people who can't do either of those. So what do they do? They contribute financially to the effort. There's the muscle, we might say, that the young people, the, the burden bearers, as the record calls them, and everyone's working together in support of these temple repairs. But did you notice that there's, there's one other group at the end of verse 12? It says at the end of verse 12, other of the Levites, all the good skill of instruments of music. This is a building project, isn't it? What are the musicians doing there? Surely they could have stayed home. They didn't need to show up that day. But everyone is involved in this effort. And again, being a musician in the house of Asaph or the house of Levi was a dead-end occupation for the last 70 years. It was no use for you. There was no demand for it. And yet, I can just imagine them quietly at home, mothers still telling the children, keep practicing, keep practicing your instrument. A time may come when it will be in use. And here it is. And they're ready. They're practiced. They, they've kept up the ability that God has given them, and they bring their valuable contribution to the ecclesia. This was the contribution they could bring. They couldn't work with timbers. They couldn't repair the floor and the roof and the ceiling structures, but they could bring music to this project. And again, brothers and sisters, I wonder, I wonder if we had an ecclesial work day and there was a group of people who said, well, I'm actually not very good at doing anything. So I've contributed financially and we might say, great. And then there's another group of people who say, I actually don't know how to work. So we're going to do a hymn sing while you guys all work. What would your mind say? Mine would say, Get some gloves on, because <laughs> that's what the flesh wants to say. But this was a valuable contribution, and God loved it. It's also on, on a symbolic level. It's a beautiful image of everyone working together, just like a choir or an orchestra. You've got, on a symbolic level, this group playing in harmony together, because if, if part of them are playing one song and the other part is playing another song, or they start in one place in the song and another starts in another place in the song. It's chaos. It's, it's not symphony, it's cacophony. But this is a beautiful image of, of actually what is happening in that day on a broader scale. Everyone is working together. The floors get built to support the walls. The walls get built to support the ceiling. The ceiling gets built and everything comes together just as it does in, well, in an orchestra as the music, musicians bring their contribution. That's ecclesial life. Some people know how to climb ladders and clean gutters, and others are afraid of heights. So they stay at ground level and they paint and wash the windows or clean the bathrooms. And is, is one more important or less important than the other? Certainly not. I mean, all the parts work together. The result is, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, the body of Christ grows fitted and held together by what every individual joint supplies. And when each one's doing its part and working properly, it makes the body grow into Christ's example as it builds itself up in love. That's the beauty of ecclesial service. You can do things that I don't know how to do, and there might be things that I know how to do that you don't know how to do. But when everyone brings their contribution, the work gets done. We don't look around at other people and think that, well, because 
I don't have their skill. I should probably just stay home. What can I bring to the equation? Everyone brings whatever they can to the project. The musicians and the singers are no exception. And all the contributions are important. In fact, verse 13, it says that the people were working in any manner of service. It's as though it's saying everyone is doing something. And all are equally important. But in the midst of all the work that's happening, Hilkiah makes the discovery of a lifetime. God blesses this diligent effort. And as everyone is going about to try to do the right thing and build up the house of God, verse 14 says that Hilkiah found a book of the law of Yahweh given by Moses. The word of God is something that has been lost for several hundred years, for generations perhaps, maybe not several hundred years, but several generations, all the way back since Hezekiah, because it had been lost during the reign of Manasseh, certainly not in use in Ammon's day. Josiah had never seen these precious writings in his whole life. We, we know that from the way that the record unfolds. And you've no doubt heard the suggestion, and we can't be 100% sure, but as the AV margin says there at the end, Hilkiah found a book of the law of Yahweh given by the hand of Moses. And there's a, there's a good suggestion, perhaps, that this was, in fact, the original copy of the law that Moses had written. Now, that's not just based on the AV margin. It's based on the fact that in Deuteronomy 31, which is a good cross-reference to put next to Second uh, Chronicles 34, it says that after Moses had finished writing out the law, he told the Levites to take what he'd written and place it where? Beside the Ark of the Covenant. Well, Second Chronicles 34 doesn't mention the Ark of the Covenant. But 2 Chronicles 35, verse 2, verse 3, sorry, does. So perhaps as they're cleaning this out, they come across this copy of the law written by the hand of Moses himself. Regardless, consider the remarkable fact, brothers and sisters, that all that time, the book of the law was there. It was there in the temple. How had it been lost? How do you lose the word of God. You know the answer to that. I know the answer to that. You lose it the same way you lose a language that you've learned. If you don't lose, if you don't use it, you lose it. The word had become lost through disuse during the reigns of Ammon and Manasseh. That's what happens when we neglect the word of God through lack of use. It gets lost among all the other clutter and all the other stuff of our mind. If we're not deliberate about making sure that it gets handled and read consistently, it's like that thing that so easily gets lost in the house. It's like that tool in the storage shed that you need every six months for something when the season changes or whatever. It's like the nail clippers in the drawer that you cannot find when you need them. Why? Because you don't use them very often. It gets lost through disuse. When we don't read the word consistently, it eventually lost up, ends up lost in our own minds, doesn't it? It's still there. It was there all along, just like the law was. And yet it was buried among the stuff. But Hilkiah delivers the book to Shaphan. Why to Shaphan? Well, because Shaphan, first and foremost, it appears from verse 8, Shaphan was given the responsibility by Josiah himself to lead the cleanup effort. And that's supported by the fact that it's Shaphan who is going to report back to Josiah on how the cleanup effort is going. We'll come to that in just a minute. But it also made sense to give the book of the law to Shaphan because the scribes were the most well-versed in reading the law. I'll give you an example of what I mean. We might think, well, surely anybody could have picked it up and read it. I mean, if, I, if you hadn't seen a Bible in 100 years, but you knew how to read English, I could give you a Bible and you'd know how to read it. Well, what about if it had been, had been lost for long enough that the writing looked like this? Because that actually is in English. The scribes were the ones who had been given the job to carefully copy out the law. The scribes were the ones who were trained in, in deciphering text that was difficult handwriting that was perhaps not the neatest or had changed over time. Because this document that was written 500 years ago 
is in English. And yet the one on the right is maybe a little bit easier to read. The one on the left, the Queen of England, wow, she had really bad writing. But even if it was, even if it was good writing, writing changes over time. And perhaps that was the case here. So Chafin takes the book to the king in verse 16 to 18. And he says, when he comes to the king, he starts with all that was committed to thy servants, they do it. And they've gathered together the money that was found in the house of Yahweh and have delivered it into the hand of the overseers, into the hand of the workmen. Now, brothers and sisters, um, there's a suggestion that perhaps Shaphan didn't even realize what he was holding and how valuable it was. And that's based on the fact that, one, he starts his report. I mean, we just read verse 16 and 17. He's got the book of the law in his hand, and he doesn't say anything about it. And two, because he simply refers to it as, when he does get to it in verse 18, he refers to it as a book. But I would suggest to you, brothers and sisters, does that make sense, given what we know of Shaphan? Would he really be unaware of what he was holding in his hand and just how valuable it was? He's a scribe. This is his job. It's his responsibility to know how valuable this is. I think there's perhaps a simple explanation for why Chafin starts with, well, let me tell you how the work is going. And it's because that's the job that Josiah gave him. He starts with a report on what the job of the day had been. Remember, this is not a let's find the book of the law treasure hunt. This is a let's repair the temple and they stumble upon the law. So he starts with, well, O king, let me give you, let me give you an update on the progress of the work. And here it is. And I think, brothers and sisters, it, it's all about how you read. Because I, I could read it and say that, you know, Josiah or Shaphan is just a bit monotone here, and he gets to verse 18. Then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hokai the priest gave me a book. I, I don't know if you're interested in reading it, Josiah. I think, I think Shaphan in verse 16 and 17, he can hardly contain his excitement. He wants to get to verse 18, but he's got to give the update to the king first. So he reads, he, he says what he does in verse 17. They've gathered together the money that was found in the house of Yahweh. They've delivered it into the hand of the overseers, into the hand of the workmen. Shaphan, take a breath. Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. Josiah, you're never going to believe what we found in the temple. And the proof of that is look how Josiah responds. You think Shaphan didn't know how Josiah would respond? These two men know each other. These two men are, are a godly support network for, for each other. We see Josiah's response. How could we think that Shaphan wouldn't be thrilled to bring this to Josiah? Yes, he calls it a book, but that's actually what the divine record called it back in verse 14. They found a book of the law. So we can't make too much of the fact that it's referred to that Shaphan calls it a book because that's the way the spirit refers to it as well. I think, I think Shaphan was thrilled that day. This is a discovery he couldn't wait to share with Josiah. And Josiah's response when Shaphan reads the law is perhaps one of, one of those simple, profound lessons that comes from Josiah's life. Has anyone ever taken the time to read the book of Deuteronomy, if that's all this was? The book of Deuteronomy, front to, front to back, without stopping? No, not, neither have I. Um, but if you do, or if you do it as fast as Alexander Scurvy does, then it takes about two and a half hours. I wonder what that two and a half hours was like, brothers and sisters, as Chafin read and read and read like a book they just couldn't put down. And Josiah's response is the basis for the title of our studies this week. Verse 19, it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the law that he rent his clothes. And if we skip ahead a few verses in chapter 34, we find more insight in verse 27, because Huldah says that his heart was tender and thou didst humble thyself before God when thou heardest his words against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, and humblest thyself before me, and didst rend thy clothes and weep before me. The reason that's so powerful, brothers and sisters, is because we're not reading the word of God for the first time. 
And the more we hear it, the more familiar it becomes. And the more familiar it becomes, the easier it is to not respond. To, as the words of James 1 say, to behold our face as in a mirror and go away and forget how the word applied to my life. It's a sobering reminder when we look at Josiah's response. And it reminds us of what it was like, perhaps, the first time we heard a class that just opened a chapter of the Bible to us, or the first time we read a verse and, and went, I'm sure I've read this verse before, but I've never read this verse like that. I've never seen this character in the Bible in that light before. And our heart is thrilled to it because our heart was tender. It's a great reminder, brothers and sisters, when we come to the Word, every time we have to come with a tender heart. To put yourself in Josiah's position, you've just spent years, literally years of your life, ridding the land of idols, getting the nation back on track spiritually, and now you're working hard to restore and repair the temple. Again, for a dangerous moment, just think about how the flesh would respond to hearing some of the things that the law of Moses said. When it says things like, when you abandon God and disobey his voice and don't keep his commands, you will be punished. Wouldn't the flesh say, oh, that doesn't apply to us. Look what we're in the middle of. I mean, we are super busy in ecclesial life. We're supporting each other, working together in harmony with one another. None of those things apply to us. Surely God must be pleased with our effort. But that's not Josiah's response. He didn't look around and identify all the ways that their lives should have been pleasing to God. He hears the word and he has the humility to look internally first, to readily accept and acknowledge all the ways that they were imperfect. He had a heart that was soft enough to realize that despite their efforts, despite all the good that was going on, there are many parts of the law that they hadn't been keeping. And God loved that response, brothers and sisters. And Josiah didn't set, him apart, set himself apart from his people and try to, try to distance himself and say, well, here's, here's what I'm doing and here's what they're doing. He didn't try to blame it all on Ammon. He didn't blame it on his circumstances, on his lineage. When he sends the men to Hulda, he tells them to inquire for me and for them. That's beautiful. He doesn't say, you better go inquire of Hulda what God's going to do to these people. No, it's for me and for them. And our minds go to other places like Daniel, Nehemiah, Ezra, men who identified with their people. This is the spirit, isn't it, brothers and sisters, of what Isaiah says in chapter 66, verse 2. To this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, that trembles at my word. There's Josiah trembling when he hears the word. This is one of the watershed moments in Josiah's life. Remember, he had no idea that they were going to find the book of the law that day when they were repairing the temple. It was not the goal of the effort, and it caught everyone entirely by surprise. And when it happened, everything else that Josiah was doing that day stopped, and the word of God became the most important thing. It was the priority. And then he heard it and he wanted to do something about it. He doesn't say, thanks, Chafin. You can go back to work. Everything stops. The work's not done. But the word was found. And Josiah is cut to the heart. He's pierced asunder. He saw how it applied in his life. And he cared enough to do something about it. But that was able to happen because it started with a tender heart and the spirit of humility. We have these watershed moments from time to time, don't we, brothers and sisters? Those moments when we hear something from the word and with a humble and a tender heart, we tremble at God's word and we're ready to say, this is it. I have to do something about this this time. I I've thought about this for the last 50 weeks, maybe four years on Sunday, I've had the same thought. And I've never done anything about it, but I've, I've got to take steps to do something about it. 
And maybe it's not something we need to get rid of. Maybe it's it's a different change we need to make. Maybe it's something we need to do with our kids or our grandkids. Maybe it's a brother or sister that we've been putting off, helping and supporting. Whatever it is, we come face to face with the word. We know that we should do something. We cannot walk away unchanged. And for Josiah, it didn't even stop there because we'll see in our next couple of studies that Josiah doesn't just send men to Huldah and then stop there. He's going to put his words into action. Step one is, is acknowledging that we need to make a change. But that's only step one. It's easy to confess on a Sunday morning or any day of the week our shortcomings to God and then do nothing about them. But we have to go on from there and actually do something. Whether it's a habit we need to break, a secret pleasure we indulge ourselves in and we don't want to let go of, Maybe it's some other idol that draws us away from God. Maybe it's something that we're not doing that we know that we need to do. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, it starts with tears, as it did for Josiah. How often? How often do we cry real tears before God when we come face to face with things that we know we need to improve on in our discipleship? One of the great powers of Josiah's example is that when he read God's word, and he saw something in his life where he didn't measure up. He didn't try to justify himself. He didn't ignore it. He simply had the humility to admit it, and he set about to make change for the better. And bear in mind, he sends these men off to Huldah, not knowing what Huldah's response is going to be. He doesn't know how Yahweh will respond to this. This is a man who has been trying, trying to do the right thing as best as he knew how. He's been trying to fulfill the prophecy of 1 Kings 13 that we looked at yesterday. He's been trying to seek God and turn the nation back to him, like his great-grandfather Hezekiah and Joash before him. And he's only 26 years old. He, he is fighting against the current and so off the men go to Huldah. Why to Huldah? Well, we'll have to talk about that after because we don't want to spend the time now. Perhaps because Huldah is there in Jerusalem. Well, why didn't he go to Jeremiah, for example, who had already started? Well, Huldah is there in Jerusalem. Huldah is actually Jeremiah's grandmother. So perhaps she's sort of the, um, you know, the more, the, the senior one that you would go to in, in an appropriate opportunity like this to find out what the will of God is. We certainly welcome your thoughts afterwards. But the response that Holda gives to Josiah is not what the flesh would want to hear. It's not what we even might expect. Given all that Josiah has done up to this point, look at the first words that Holda says in verse 24. Verse 23, tell ye the man that sent you to me, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring evil upon this place. Whoa. Unfair. Unjust. If you don't think that's how the flesh would respond, that's exactly what the people say in Ezekiel's day. Ezekiel 18, verse 25. The way of Yahweh is not fair. That's what the flesh would want to say. Look what I'm doing, Lord. How can you bring evil upon this place in light of this day's activities? Because our flesh tends to accentuate the good things that we try to do to drown out the evil things. Catch yourself when you do that. We, we see it in our kids all the time, and yet it's so difficult to see in ourselves. The flesh tends to accentuate the good things that we try to do to drown out the evil things. We, we tend to look at the good in our heart to try to hide the wrong motive or the evil thought. There's partial obedience to what God asks us to do, and we want to focus on that and not on the things that we perhaps neglected to do. Again, this is all part of this watershed moment that speaks volumes about the tenderness of Josiah's heart and his humility, the way that he receives and responds to Huldah's message. He's been working for the last six years, nonstop, as it were, and there is not a whisper of that in anything that Huldah says. No recognition 
for all of his efforts. No acknowledgement of all the good they're doing that very day. It starts with, there is evil coming upon this place. And what Josiah's response was to the words that he had read. Because that's the response that God loves, brothers and sisters. This is an end of an era prophecy, we might call it. Consider the enormity of this circumstance. Think back to men like Noah. Noah's told the earth will be destroyed. Abraham is told that his descendants would end up as slaves in Egypt. Moses was told that the children of Israel would all wander and die in the wilderness. Joshua is told that his efforts would not outlive him. Men who, who experienced this sort of end of an era prophecy. And now Josiah is told, after all this time, all these years, all these generations, all these kings, this is it. The end of the monarchy. It's coming. And there's nothing you can do to stop it, Josiah. Period of 400, over 400 years of the kingdom of God on earth. It's over. Or it will be soon. Just ponder the gravity of that message. You are the king. It's on your watch. At least that's how it would feel. He knows that it wouldn't be. It would be in the reign of his sons. What a heavy message to hear from Huldah. How does a faithful man respond to such weighty news? Consider what the natural response might have been after having tried for so many years to do all this great work in ridding the land of idolatry, of cleansing the temple, of restoring true worship, turning the nation around, only to find out that destruction is decreed upon your people and the generation after you, and yet your heart is tender and humble to accept that God is good, he is always right. It's a difficult pill to swallow sometimes, isn't it, brothers and sisters? But the message had two parts, and we can't ignore the second half, that yes, there was destruction coming on the nation because they had forsaken God so often and for so long, but there is also there's a personal message to Josiah in verse 26, 27 and 28, that he would, <clears throat> he would go to his grave in peace. And the evil that God had in store for the nation would not happen until after he died. Now, we're going to ask you to hang on to that till the end of the week when we look at Josiah going to his grave in war. We'll look at that later on. But he's promised here he's going to go to his grave in peace. But why is he given that promise? Holda tells him it was because of his response to what he heard. Did you notice the little textual connection there in verse 26 and 28? At the end of verse 26, it says, Thus saith Yahweh, God of Israel, concerning the words which thou hast heard. And then she goes on. And because when you heard them, your heart was tender and you were humble. And then in verse 27, not 28, at the end of verse 27, I have even heard thee, saith Yahweh. This is God's response to Josiah based on Josiah's response to God. Josiah had heard the words and responded to them. And God heard Josiah's tears and responded to him. That's powerful, brothers and sisters. That's the assurance that we have from our Heavenly Father. That when we tremble at his word and we're committed to applying it, that he sees that, he responds to it, it has an impact on our Heavenly Father and on what he does. That, that is a powerful, powerful thing to think about. That your prayers, your actions, my prayers, my actions can impact our Heavenly Father. So let's just finish with uh, reviewing quickly some of the, the takeaway points from our study this morning. Just to review as we're out of time, the first one is the value of surrounding ourselves with a godly support team. Don't try to do it all on our own. 
Secondly, to be completely dependable and integrious. I'm not sure if that's actually a word, but integrious in whatever work that we're given to do. We are faithful in what we put our hand. I think it is. I see a lot of smiles, but I think that's the word. And it ought to be if it's not. The third one is every contribution from every person is important. It's worth remembering that, isn't it? Especially when we, we sometimes feel like our contribution is not very significant, or sometimes we feel like our contribution was the most important thing at the luncheon today. Every contribution is important. Even the one chair that that little four-year-old pushed into place at the table, every contribution. Don't let the word of God get buried by the stuff of life. And lastly, to tremble at God's word and be prepared to do something in response to it. In Josiah's position, brothers and sisters, how do you go forward? In light of Hulda's very grave message, what are your next steps? You now know that any future effort you put into trying to reform this nation is still going to ultimately end up, end up in going off to captivity. So why continue trying? What's the point? Why not just focus on your own family and maintaining faith in your own households? Because after all, God has said destruction is coming for the nation anyway. But what's beautiful is that nothing could be further from Josiah's attitude. Because having heard the word of God, he's going to let that guide his next steps to lighten the path that lay ahead of him in the words of one of our hands. But we'll look at that in our next study, God willing.